We are in Daniel uh, chapter 2, and we're just going to kind of go back over some stuff. Uh, On paper, I usually try to, um, or I say on paper, on my document on my computer, I usually have a pretty nice outline I try to follow and to be halfway organized. Um, Today may be very jumpy, um, but not for lack of trying. Um, I wanted to accomplish a few things. One is I wanted to let us get some of the big pictures from Daniel 2 that we could maybe get some personal application from. Secondly, I wanted to talk about some of the interpretation um, that we get from the chapter and also some of the um, organization, if you will, of that interpretation in terms of uh, what that means for how you look at other parts of Daniel and other parts of the Bible. Because uh, there are some crossroads within the book. You, you, you may not realize it, but there are some crossroads there that if you get really picky, uh, if you go down one direction, um, it has implications for how you interpret other things. If you go in another direction, it has different implications. Um, uh, part of grappling with all that it, and the challenge with that and, and, and this... <laughs> This may work better as a Q&A session. I'm not real sure how it's going to work, but um, I'm, I'm open to that, by the way. Uh, we'll do the Q and we'll let Dad do the A. Uh, <laughs> but part of grappling with that, I think, is, is kind of good exercise for all of us when you're talking about prophecy. Because when you're looking at, at things that have a prophetic element, um, the potential to get the most impact is when you get the most detailed into how you interpret things. But you also go a little further out on the limb um, and it becomes less secure the further you go out. So to carry that analogy a little further, if you ever hear folks that are so dogmatic, chances are they've gone way out on the limb and they think they're more secure than they are, okay? Uh, so, uh, I think you'll kind of get a feel for that. But the gist of Daniel 2, as, as we will recall, and, and I, we probably have some people that weren't here last uh, week, uh, this is the chapter where uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream, and he wants his magicians and astrologers and uh, advisors and so forth Uh, to interpret that dream, but it sounds like he's been so jaded by them that he ups the ante and says, actually, I do want my dream interpreted, but I want you to tell me what the dream was. And of course, we know that, gosh, you know, nobody could do that. Nobody could tell you what the dream is. And as word filters out that if if they can't meet this challenge, then they're all going to get axed. Daniel says, I know a guy. I'm paraphrasing. He says, I know the Lord, and only the Lord could do this. Only the Lord could do this. 
And he says, let's pray about this. He gets his buddies, they pray about it. And he tells the uh, commander there, um, you know, I, I can do this, you know, because of, because of God's help. So let's look at the gist of the dream, and then we're going to talk about the interpretation. So go to uh, Daniel 2. Uh, let's see. Verse 31, Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was a dream eloquently described, including describing how Daniel, I mean, how Nebuchadnezzar felt when he saw the dream. So not only did God reveal to Nebuchadnezzar the content, and we'll see in a moment the interpretation, but even told Daniel how Nebuchadnezzar felt because it was frightening. He has such confidence that God has revealed this to him, he moves straight into the interpretation. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now let me pause there. Critics criticize. That's what they do, right? Um, people who think that Daniel, the book of Daniel, may not have the full authority and weight of Scripture, like to pick at this verse. Why are they calling Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings? That's not who the king of kings is. Why are they saying that he has power and might and glory over the beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and all this sort of stuff? Why is he flattering this pagan king that way? Well, if you roll up your sleeves a little bit and dig into it, um, he was the king of kings. And in Ezekiel 26.7, it says, For thus says the Lord of God, 
Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with the horses and chariots, etc., etc. He was, at that time, the dominant figure, the dominant king, the king above all other kings that existed. So that's nothing more than fact. There were some cultural things going on that attributed to this king additional powers over, you know, um, birds and animals and so forth, and their commentary on that that is supportive of the authenticity of Scripture. So just, if it does sound strange to the ear to hear Nebuchadnezzar call the king of kings, that's what that is about. All right, on to the uh, interpretation. Verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet, it, so he's talking about the, um, in the, in the image, we had the, the gold, right? The head of gold. And he said, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel goes on and says, there's another kingdom inferior to you will rise after you. So that's the silver kingdom. And then it says, yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over, rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And this next verse gets into some of what Daddy was talking about, about this marriage thing. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they, I'm in the English Standard Version here. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. The English Standard Version, I, I like it. It's pretty readable and it's, Typically, here's uh, Hughes very close to, um, in fact, is considered a word-for-word translation. But any translation, um, sometimes the interpreters um, make a make a judgment call. And here, I think they um, they maybe have misled a little bit. The New American, which I think most people agree with, um, is the most literal um, of the. Uh, of the reliable versions that we use. In verse 33 it says, and in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. There's nothing necessarily about marriage there. So combine each with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. So some people have thought that this talks about um, domestic types of disturbances uh, uh, and that sort of thing. We'll, we'll come back to this a little bit. Um, we'll move on for the moment. Verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, 
and its interpretation is sure. To finish out the chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel, commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel uh, high honors and many great gifts, made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. What does that little section remind you of? Who said it? Joseph. Joseph, Joseph, remember, was uh, hanging out in prison, and it was found that he could interpret dreams, remember? He gets taken to Pharaoh, interprets the dream about the coming famine and uh, the coming years of bounty, and he gets put in charge over the project of making it all happen. So uh, some parallels there, of course, that are obvious. So let's go back to... uh, our picture um, let's see <coughs> with the um, the big Daniel chart that we have I'm gonna pull it up on the screen all right so The concept here is that when we look at this statue or this image that was talked about in Daniel's dream, uh, what can everybody agree on? Everyone seems to agree that the different divisions represent different kingdoms, right? And we know for sure about the head because he said that's you right the head was gold we had arms and chest of silver and Mitchell Arkin has said um, this represents the Mede and Persian Empire we have this section of brass that is thought to mean the Greek Empire and then, as Dad talked about last week, from here on down, it's thought to represent the Roman Empire. So, let me just introduce this little bit of controversy. This section about the Greek Empire is interesting. Those of you that have read ahead might recognize a little bit of similarity So we're going to just touch on briefly Daniel chapter 7. So flip over to Daniel chapter 7. We won't go in detail now. But in this case, Daniel gets a dream. Daniel gets a vision of four beasts. If you look in Daniel 7 verse 4, it says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings... 
were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. Verse 6 says, After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Most commentators suggest that the list of the four beasts mentioned in chapter 7 in Daniel's vision correlate with the different kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The first beast, the Babylonian Empire. The second, it says, uh, let's see, verse 5, second one like a bear raised up on one side, People think that refers to the Medes and Persians. And thirdly, the, the third beast, the Grecian Empire. Now, the interesting thing about this, the description in verse 6 of a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. The leopard was known to be one of the fastest animals. And most people connect this with Alexander the Great. He established his rule with extreme swiftness. In fact, that may have been the main characteristic of his conquest was how rapidly he accomplished it. And those of you who probably know more history than I do, as after he died, his conquest was rather immediately divided into four generals who took over four different territories. This would correlate with the four wings of a bird on its back and the four heads and with dominion over it. The four heads having power and authority would correlate with those four generals who took over the reign of Alexander the Great. So this all seems to make sense, right? It kind of adds support to this scheme. Further, notice how much similarity there is in the language in the last one. We have in verse, um, uh, let's see, verse 7, this fourth beast, Terrifying, dreadful, strong, iron teeth. And people who talk about the Roman Empire and their conquest, it was really powerful, organized technology, military um, uh, schemes. Um, And then we have the mention of the feet, right? So this would seem to correlate with this as well. Now, for some, the description of this 
Grecian segment with the rapid leopard and then the four coming out of it. Some people, that's just too hard for them to swallow. They can't imagine that prophecy could be that detailed. So for this and other reasons, they think that Daniel was maybe written as history after those things had already happened. We put Daniel in the 600 B.C. era. Some people who take this other view put it around the 2nd century B.C. as if the Alexander the Great Conquest and so forth have already happened and they would interpret this uh, Iron Empire as a warning for um, what was to come. Now, of course, even then you would have to assume, I mean, the Roman Empire was barely in its earliest elements, certainly wasn't a power by then, so even then it would require some, some prophecy. But that's, you know, the, the scholars that, that think they know a whole lot they use this as one of their arguments to discount the book of Daniel. So I want you to know that there's an element out there that believes that way. Does somebody have a hand? I have a question. No? All right, let me, let me pick up a feather. Let me argue with you a little bit. Yep. <laughs> Go to chapter 8. This is not rehearsal. Yeah, this is not been rehearsed. Go to chapter 8. And, and Daniel's vision is interpreted here and Gabriel himself in verse 16 give this man an understanding of the vision so the Lord sent him verse 20 says the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the maids and virgins and you see Dr. Dr. Uh, uh, Larkin has, has shown the ram there down at the bottom right there the beast he talks about the ram verse 21 he says the shaggy goats represent the kingdom of Greece which is which is the shaggy goat there so um, I'm amazed that these people are that are so smart they deny scripture because uh, one of the arguments that this is not this is is where it is the very first verse of the book of Daniel says in the third year of the reign of Joachim of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it we know that to be true so sometimes it's kind of like I've said before an old country preacher you know the Bible throws a lot of light on these commentaries so the Bible throws a lot of light on some of these scholars, but there are there are just there are in scholarly circles divisions or uh, differences in what Daniel did and what he did do. And Art's trying to get there. If I would leave him alone, go ahead. No, to add to that point, turn to Matthew chapter twenty-four. The reference is uh, chapter two, Matthew 24, verse 
15. This is, this is Jesus speaking. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, we can get in at some point down the road as to what the abomination of desolation is, but the point is, Jesus believed the book of Daniel. Jesus believed that Daniel was a prophet. That's good enough for me. Right? So, just to, to, to make the point, there are some people who question the authorship of Daniel putting the prophecies of Daniel mostly as history if it were written after the conquest of Alexander the Great. But Jesus didn't do that, and nor will we. So, there's still plenty of controversy, though. <laughs> and maybe not to that extreme, because, you know, there's so many implications. If you don't think the book of Daniel is true, then you're really in a, you're way out on one of those limbs, right? So, again, most people, I think, would agree. By the way, just to finish up the thought, if you're in that, if you're in that um, camp of, of thinking that, that Daniel was written late, what do you do with this thing? So they would divide the Medes and the Persians up and, and move Greece on down here. Anyway, it gets, it's much harder for, for them to explain it. All right, so most of us agree, this is Babylon, Medes and Persians, the silver, Greeks here, and then Rome after that. Now, this is, this is where good, sincere, Bible-believing people start to, start to differ. A lot of it comes down to the stone, right? So let's go back and look at the stone. Uh, verse 35 of Daniel 2. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. Oh, let's go back one. I missed a verse. Verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. I think all kind of Bible-believing evangelical folks, as much as people could agree on anything, would agree that the king, the last kingdom, the kingdom that's left standing after all the chaff is blown away, is the kingdom of God, right? We can all agree with that. And what do we do with the stone? Some people would say the stone represents Jesus at his first coming and the ushering in of the age of the church. And that over the course of time, the power of the cross and the actions of the church are dismantling these worldly empires and the feet of clay and iron. Okay? Others who would have, would have the view that 
this was a, the head was a political and military kingdom. The chest was a political and military kingdom. The waist and thighs were a military kingdom. What's happening at the final outcome is going to be a political kingdom as well. It's also going to be a spiritual kingdom. But we know from Isaiah that this is where God sets the world aright. He fixes everything, including the world systems. So the other group, if you don't believe that the stone represents the first coming of Christ and the ushering in of the church age, then this other group, which Dad and I would put ourselves in this group, the stone represents Jesus at his second coming. Okay? Ushering in what we call the millennial kingdom where things are put aright. Okay? Let me close briefly with a couple more pictures. For fun, if you go to Google and Google Nebuchadnezzar's dream, okay, and you click on the images tab, you'll see all the various folks who have tried to diagram what they think this looks like. Okay, so here we have, um, this is from a Catholic page, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and down here they say this is the divided, na the ten toes, the divided nations of Western Europe. Uh, some people say, well, this is Babylonians, Persians, Greece, Roman, and that the ten toes represents the Holy Roman Empire, the church, the, the Roman Catholic church being destroyed by Christ. So it's just kind of interesting to do that. Something else, I, another site I would uh, call to your attention is a free site called worldhistorymaps.info. These are free maps where this gentleman has looked at what was going on at various times in history. So if we go back to 600 BC, this is how the world would have looked in Daniel's day. And the Medes and Persians of Chaldean Empire, that was the Babylonians, or the, the origin of Babylonians and so forth. And you can go to different times in history. Here's what it looked like. This is the territory that Alexander the Great had. Uh, that's 323. If you go to the time of Christ, all these things that are written in red, these are the Roman Empire. The thing that struck me as I was looking at this is look how much of the world isn't talked about. Right? This is just the Eastern Hemisphere. We are literally not on the map. Right? And look at all this area over here. All of China. China's dynasties goes back centuries. They're not really covered by this. So people that get too laser focused and say, you know, this is all about 
just the Roman Catholic Church, I think they're maybe bringing too fine of a point to it. Anyway, fun stuff. There's more that we can talk about. But the big idea is God gave this so that Nebuchadnezzar would know something and so that we would know something. It tells us God is interested in the course of human events and he is in charge of the course of human events and he wins, right? We better stop. Father, thank you for caring about us enough to reveal yourself to us in so many ways, including through the writings of Daniel. Help us as we continue to dig into this and help us appreciate more and more uh, what you do for us and that we could also, like Nebuchadnezzar did, bow down and worship you as the God of gods and the King of all kings. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.